0: Stay
1: on stage, Charles, take a chill and tell. On stage, chill and talk. On stage, Charles, take a chill and talk. Here we go again, folks. Welcome to the fourth Petaluma History episode of On Stage with Jim and Tom. With coronavirus still keeping much of what we do in a frozen state, Tom and I have decided to keep digging into local history with our recent episodes. Tonight we are joined by returning guests Katie Watts and John Sheehy, and we will be exploring a 50-year period of Petaluma history starting in the 1920s and ending around the 1970s. Now, this is a great time to explore in this town's history because it really shows how lots of what you see today came into being. So let's get started. Katie Watch, John Sheehy, welcome to the program.
2: Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here.
1: John and Tom are the guys that came up with starting with the 1920s. Um, and I'm curious why you guys thought that was a good place to start for this episode.
0: It actually was Katie's recommendation. She went to talk about the Igbas of the world era in the 20s, which is really the height of Petaluma up until that time. And also, um, Jim, I thought it would be a nice tie-in to your great-grandfather, Angelo Ages, who I don't think many people know about what a key role he played in the egg industry at that time.
2: Yeah, and, and you know what is as as you look at, at the way uh, Petaluma's morphed over the years, this was one of the periods uh, we came from chickens and then started morphing into the town that we are today in the 50s, and, and I think that they, they actually mixed together well and, and, and kind of were a great segue uh, within each other.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing you might... Um, mentioned, Tom, is a, a lot of the building that takes place in Petaluma does, happens during the really um, plush days, and the 20s is de- definitely that. So the old the old west side of Petaluma, a lot of that, after the Victorian age, a lot of the newer buildings, and we'll get to the Aegis family, too, is built in this peak period during the egg boom, too. Oh, absolutely. But I think that's a nice tie-in to what then comes later after World War Two.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and just as another note, um this is kind of going to be a fun episode because we are going to touch on my family's history here. Uh 1920s, 1930s was when we really came into our own and then uh John and Tom's family kind of uh made their mark on the town, I would say in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and the, the building period for me and,
2: yeah. and even John's yep. dad was working on on uh, I think some of the Novak projects in the early days yep. of uh, Yeah. That's exactly right. Absolutely.
1: Well, let's uh, let's jump into the uh, the egg boom, the nineteen twenties. The reason that a lot of people even know what Petaluma is and what it is thought of, even if that is not entirely correct to this day. The
3: the main reason that I wanted to talk about it was because I I researched it so heavily when I was working at the Argus. I found it just fascinating the number of stunts that were being being created to promote this and the uh, the, the warmth and the small townness of it the the year that the the queen's float could not come down the boulevard because of the electrical wires the float was too tall and it tangled with them
1: what was that float
3: well there was, uh, there was an egg day queen every year, and it was usually a, a popularity contest of, of vote with local merchants. But the floats got bigger and bigger and more elaborate as the, the egg days grew. And one year, because of the new, in that, those days, of course, electrical wires, the float was simply too tall.
1: So this town being a, a place for opportunity for your family, for, for a livelihood, kind of spread all over in the nineteen hundred 1900, nineteen ten nineteen twenties, 1920s, right? John, in your book, you talk about how the population of the town nearly doubled from that uh, 1900 to 1920, and that people were coming from all over Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Japan, Russia, and the East Coast, because this seemed like a good place to come and make a bunch of money.
0: Well, the work was out, and it, it was easy to get into the chicken-raising and, and egg business. Which was a hard uh, sell. With a bit of capital, and people would put that up. You could borrow the money and get yourself five acres in a brooder house uh, out in the in the outlying countryside and get started um,
2: But you know chickens. what? But As you look it at it... It also
0: had a, a reputation for being a very uh, yeah. easy uh, way to make money in oh. the agriculture. As it turned out... It, that was not the case and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot there was a lot of turnover in chicken farming.
2: It was more uh, like a ponzi scheme. Yeah, people were coming in and, and buying their, uh, their, uh, their their space and, and starting their chicken farms and then finding out how tough it was to really keep your chickens alive, keep them fed, uh, the cost of running your uh, chicken farm versus the amount of money that you could make if you were delivering or one of the uh, support businesses for chickens. This is where it seems like most of the money was made. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think I, I think very much so, uh, all the middlemen. And and um, there were problems with disease with chickens. We had, of course, the chicken uh, pharmacy here in town. Um, there was a poultry journal that was put out with the latest studies and whatnot. It got to be very scientific, but then there was the price of grain, which was another fluctuating issue for, for chicken ranchers. And as you say, it was the middlemen, it was the the banks and the grain merchants and, and the transportation people who were making money. And, and, Jim, that sort of brings us to your great-grandfather, Angelo Ages.
1: Yeah, I, was, I, I got a lot of information on him, and I'd love to talk about it. But before we do that, why Petaluma? Like, why Petaluma of all the surrounding areas <laughs> in, uh, in the Bay Area and beyond?
0: Because of the climate. Because yeah, the climate and the sandy soil out west of town, especially, which was mm-hmm. great for chickens pecking on the ground and getting a little bit of grizzle um, into, their, into their throats there to digest, essentially. And that was very key. Um, so it was the climate and the soil, the sandy soil. These mm-hmm. were the
3: days before air conditioning. So we needed um, a very temperate climate to keep the chickens alive because chickens will die if it gets too hot.
2: Yeah, so let me ask a question then. What, what did come first in Petaluma, the incubator or the chicken?
0: Well, the chicken came first, and then came the incubator, and then then came um, really chicken raising, which, I, you know, the two key people you hear about are Lyman Bice with the incubator. And, and I want to set the record straight here because I've recently been reading some research that was done by Thea Lowry for her book Empty Shells, and Katie, you may...
3: Familiar
0: yes, with this too. I know this one. And yes. um, Lyman Bice came here as a 24 year old from Toronto, Canada, supposedly for his health, uh, which is kind of interesting. Most people don't come to a foggy climate for their health, but that's why he showed up and he claimed to be a medical student who had dropped out of medical school. And he went to see his dentist, a Jewish man named Isaac Diaz. And Isaac had invented uh, a new incubator, essentially, for chickens. There are a lot of incubators out there, but this one was really special because it can maintain a steady temperature of 103 degrees, which is the same as a brooding hen's body heat. Um, So, uh, Weiss had done a little bit of chicken, uh, of egg incubation inventions back when he was growing up as a boy, and he spotted the opportunity here that Diaz had invented this. Um, And in my My view, he's sort of the Steve Jobs, to Steve Wozniak on Apple, uh, who finds the inventor and then really knows how to market this. Vice is uh, credited with being the inventor, but it was really Diaz. Um, And then Diaz Diaz takes the incubator out to the state farms and state fairs and whatnot, and then just as it's starting to take off in the early 1880s, he meets with this unusual hunting accident, hunting duck down on the river, where he's... Um, shot in the head with a shotgun. And they, they think that it was a suicide or an accident. But after that, Bice pretty much takes credit for the incubator and then uses his marketing expertise just to uh, take off with the Petaluma Incubator Company. So that, that planted the seed, but the next guy who comes in, this uh, Danish guy, Christopher uh, Nissen, arrives, and he's the one who really sets up the chicken ranching kind of production line where he has brooder houses and he has uh, chicken houses on sleds that he can pull around uh, where the manure falls out through the slats and he uses that for fertilizer. And he's the one who really turns chicken ranching into a factory. Before that, chickens were kind of pastoral animals. They just wandered around and you'd go around and try to find out where they laid their eggs. And he's the one who makes it into a business, really.
1: And then, Katie, if I'm sorry to interrupt, John, um, I, we talked about this on the first one of these we did four or five years ago. But um, Bert Kerrigan, the guy that yes. Pet- Petaluma yep. hired to do a campaign, <laughs> and, and it's important because we, we talk about how the, the thought was that you could come out here and make a lot of easy money. But in fact, you know, a lot of people came out for every hundred guys that came out maybe one was super successful uh i saw that written somewhere uh, do you think that had to do with uh kerrigan's ad campaign that petaluma paid him to do to make a reputation for this area to be Absolutely. a great place
3: yeah. yes yes because um he he toured they they gave him a tour everything that was going on in petaluma and he said eggs are it put all your eggs in one basket he was a PR whiz. He created the slogan "Milk from contented cows" for Carnation, and in 1918 he proclaimed Petaluma the Egg Basket of the World. Oh, was there the was a National Egg Day, August 18th,
0: 1918.
2: This is how. So he, he was not aware of the dangers of monoculture at that time.
0: <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. But other people in town were, and they tried. John McNair, for example, uh, tried to fight it basically, because he uh-huh. believed that, that we shouldn't be in monocrops mono and monoculture and we should be diversified. McNair had lived through the wheat boom in the mid-19th century here, which was what built this town, really, was the wheat boom. And, and then that had gone away by the 1880s. And, um,
2: and he was really we, a part you know, of was that a of
0: recession, And McNair himself set out to bring factories and whatnot to Petaluma to get away from monoculture, um, so there were a lot of people, business people, like McNair who felt that. And when Bert uh, proposed this in the late 1910s about focusing on eggs, there was a lot of discussion within the Chamber of Commerce about going that route. Um, but everyone eventually just piled on, and it, it took off. They rode the boom, you know. Um, so money speaks. And I think, you know, the other thing that it intrigues me about Bert Kerrigan and also uh, Lyman Bice They're both kind of hucksters. And and one thing I wanted to mention about Vice is that uh, Theo Lowry uh, contacted all the medical schools in Canada and determined that he had never been in medical school. He made up his whole background when he came here. Um, And I think he was a bit of a showman as well. And by 1920, when things were peaking with eggs, his incubator business was actually on the rocks because he had overextended himself. He really went into... international trading kind of situation and he got overextended Um, and from the 20s on while the boom was still happening his business was really in the tank his his son essentially took it over
1: and he kind of stepped away from the business. How did we escape the fate of uh, being just you know a town that is uh, filled with despair and kind of broken dreams?
0: Um, Two things. One is our secondary industry was dairy and um, thanks to largely a lot of Swiss Italian and Portuguese immigrants who came here beginning in the 1890s, they really built up the dairy industry to the west of town in and, and uh, northwestern Marin there. Um, so dairy was the fallback. and, and when, the, when the depression hit in 1930, the, the egg industry just went it just went down, really hard. People lost their farms and whatnot. Um, and that happened across the board, but a lot of those farmers diversified into other crops, and into dairy and whatnot. So I think the other thing, keep in mind what happened in the depression, the grain mills actually took over a lot of the ranches because people couldn't pay for the grain. Um, and some of, some of the mills were uh, quite generous about it, and they allowed the farmers to stay on the ranch and try to pay off their debts to them. Um, some were not. They sold off the, the properties and evicted the farmers. So um, it was really the mills that kind of controlled the game with the banks. And then also you have co-ops. So in the dairy industry, the, the clover co-op started in 1915 because, and this goes back to what we're, Tom brought up before, the middlemen were making all the money on the milk, and the farmers were kind of uh, at the mercy of the marketplace. So they formed a co-op in 1915. They were almost all Swiss Italians. And that's how they maintained uh, a certain price level for their wholesale milk to market. And then in the 1930s, in the, in the, in really the depth of the depression, the poultry producers associations also created in Petaluma very much the similar kind of approach of having a co-op in the sense to have some protection from price fluctuations. So those are two things that happened to try to stabilize things for people well, in, so in the area.
2: So the chicken, the chicken uh, ranchers had. was it the PPCC, it was their uh, an organization that was a support organization for them and kind of a unionized style of a, uh, but I think in right. the end, did that turn into a monolith itself and kind of uh, eat, eat some of their own uh, people? Is, I think
0: yeah, I'll, it did. By the 50s, uh, when the market really changed, I mean, we're definitely a little ahead, but after World War II, refrigeration trucks come on the scene, and a lot of Chicken ranches now start up in the Central Valley and in Arkansas and places like that, Purdue and whatnot, and they can now truck eggs around. I mean, we sort of controlled the West Coast market because we could put eggs on trains and feed the West Coast because even without refrigeration, the eggs could travel for a few days by rail. Uh, After that, there's nothing particularly special about Petaluma and these big factory farms take off in the Central Valley for both eggs, um, and dairy. And it's during that period where um, the poultry producers in town um, make some mistakes. I, you know, having read some of the history, I'm not sure they could have avoided it, but they become the bad guys for a lot of farmers who lose their chicken ranches uh, after World War II, essentially.
1: How do they become the bad guys?
0: Um, I think it had to do something about uh, the cost of grain went up. There was a lot... Um, A lot of the grain merchants, some of them uh, were Jewish in town. There was a lot of uh, anti-Semitic animosity toward them because these farmers couldn't, they couldn't, they were, what they were paying for grain, they couldn't get back and what they sold for their eggs. And the market was changing with these big factory farms. So this happened to the dairy industry too. It, It just, it didn't make sense anymore. There was no more margin left. And so there was some mismanagement, from what I've read, on the, on the part of the poultry producers in town. And the whole thing collapsed in the early 60s, and there were a lot of people who went bankrupt once it collapsed. They had their money in the poultry producers, and they ended up with nothing. Um, so that's how they became the bad guys, in a sense. Um, I'm not sure, from the big scheme of things, if it was avoidable.
1: So before we move from the chickens, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how my family got here, if that's interesting to everybody. Because yeah, we're uh, talking
0: yeah. about middlemen, and, and your your great-grandfather was one of the top middlemen in town.
1: <laughs> yeah, He was a, a middleman and other things, too, probably. But he's a great example of, you know, these old family names that you see on the buildings and that you just see generation after generation. His is a story that many families had. He moved over here from Malta in... Well, he was born in Malta in 1872, and he came over here to America in June of 1900. Nobody knows why he did, but uh, he purchased a return fare to Malta before he left Malta, just in case it didn't work out. And what I love about it is he um, he worked in a grocery store for a brief time before he entered the poultry industry, which is hilarious because our family owns Petaluma Market. Totally unrelated. Um, And I also love that he worked in a grocery store and had never had any experience doing that when he lived in Malta. In Malta, his life, his uh, his job was being a carriage tender for an opera house and being a shoemaker. So very much a guy who, you know, heard that this was a good place to raise a family and and pursue opportunity and away he went. Um, And I love that because, you know, for me, his fourth generations, uh, you know, down the line, I do things at the Phoenix Theater, which is the Hill Opera House. And I run a grocery store, family grocery store. So just the the overlap of uh, generations is very interesting. Um, but yeah, he worked in San Francisco for a long time, um, until around 1913 when he moved to this area, Petaluma, because his boss sent him to come do some stuff. He was
2: actually, was he, he was moving chickens in San Francisco or he was moving eggs in San Francisco. Wasn't he? Was that what his gig was? He He
1: was was moving, uh, live chickens. And the reason he came to Petaluma was technology had advanced and they wanted to begin experimenting with the transport of live chickens from the ranches of Petaluma to San Francisco. So it was very much an experiment it was very much a trial it was very much not a place he planned on ending up and he raised eight children and one of those ended up being uh, my grandfather and uh he was Jim the 1st and my dad is Jim the 2nd and here I am Jim the 3rd. But yeah, he became very successful and uh very wealthy doing just what you said John which is being a middleman being the guy that's transporting the chickens from place to place. You see pictures of him. He was always wearing a a suit and a tie. Big house on West Street, which is still there to this day, had that built for his family. One of those sort of American dream sort of situations came over here and, and accomplished what he tried to do.
2: But I do want to point out here, though, that he was not driving a Prius at that time.
1: No, that's important. Not not everything is uh, one-to-one between Angelo Aegis and myself, but... Um, I mean, John. So your your family was very close with my family. I mean, and through us still is. But your parents were very close with my grandparents.
0: Yes, your your grandfather and my father went to St. Vincent's together from grammar school on, and were best buddies. And um, after Angelo Ages, your great grandfather passed away in 1941, I think, right before the war started. Um, all the Ageses were living over on the West Street house, uh, house designed by Julia Morgan. We should mention. Uh, it's one of the more stellar houses in town. And my father was a regular uh, visitor over there um, throughout, I think, the late 30s, early 40s, before everyone got drafted into the war, essentially. So I, I know that when the, Ange, the Aegis boys went into the war, uh, people would put a star in the window for uh, for family members who were in the service, and they added an extra star in that window at the Aegis house for my father as well. So. That was a great tribute that everyone talked about
1: uh, all my life growing up. And uh, just another bit about Angelo Agis. Uh, None of his children learned to communicate in Italian or Maltese, but he could speak Maltese, Italian, and English. He also enjoyed playing the mandolin. So, uh, and he wore suits everywhere, which is just something I keep coming back to. And I keep coming back to it because there is um, some speculation that when he would make his trips to San Francisco and when he would make his trips to Malta, now it can get interesting, by the way, that maybe he was affiliated with perhaps other businesses. I don't know. Um, Uh And uh, I think this is a really good segue into uh, the prohibition and the speakeasy era of Petaluma. Now, I've never heard any speculation that he was involved in any of that, but uh, Tom was kind of uh, oh, musing think... before we started that, boy, isn't it kind of funny that... Uh...
2: Well, middlemen uh, in Petaluma yep. were, were doing quite well transporting as, as much as the uh, the people that were producing, I think. Uh, yep. And, and uh, it, I find it uh, a happy coincidence that uh, your great-grandfather was driving around the county with a bunch of chickens in a truck, supposedly.
1: Well, and making trips to making <laughs> trips to San Francisco and back, yes. and um, you know every once in a while just kind of taking random trips to uh, Malta and back and Italy and back, um, which you know back then that was that was a pretty huge thing to be going back there, uh, <laughs> tearing down. Yeah, the...
0: it, it was. And it's interesting to me because most of the, um, from what I can tell, a lot of the the, the bootlegging syndicates in in town were Italian based. Although my great uncle uh, Will Casey, who was one of the gang members was an Irishman. There was some Irish involved. But I haven't heard of any Maltese. Your great grandfather's first Maltese that I've, I've heard of here. And I was interested in, in reading about him a little bit. Um, he did work for this syndicate in San Francisco named uh, Capano uh, Brothers. And that's who managed the chickens on the other end in the city. And he had this other partner named Dominic Chella. Who came to Petaluma? He was Swiss. He was Italian, Swiss Italian. came to Petaluma in 1905, and and he did. He was a middleman, like your uh, great grandfather. And at one point, they both worked for the Campagno brothers. Um,
1: Which, by the way, sorry and, to interrupt, but come on with that name, the Campagno brothers in San Francisco. I mean, it does sound perhaps like there may be something else going on there.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm sensing that too.
1: <laughs> but Sorry to interrupt. Please continue.
0: Well, well. Anyway, they, you know, he he had a couple. They had a couple places. They had a place over on Weller Street. That was their main warehouse where people actually brought their chickens and then they put them on boats to the city. But then he also, and I think you know this, Jim, is that he, he rented um, an old hook and ladder company. It was a famous hook and ladder number one company uh, that was on the it was on the south east corner of Keller and Western, where the Wells Fargo Bank is right now. It was a classic building, and he had been a member of the hook-and-ladder team, too. And he bought that building in 1919. Uh, my great my grandfather uh, ran a paint store called Sheehy Brothers with his brother down on Kentucky Street where the hideaway is, and their warehouse was adjacent to your great-grandfather's uh, building there on the corner of Keller and Western. So he had all these um, different... I think he had at least three locations of things that were moving around. And as Tom says, a lot of the, When I've read about the prohibition, a lot of the whiskey was transported um, through the dairy industry under the guise of transporting milk cans and whatnot. But it seems very likely that this would have had any transportation means this was the way that they would have moved alcohol around and also the means of making alcohol, which were sugar. Which was transported up here. So
2: that was a big, you you know. It's
0: interesting to me that the Cella, who I've seen pictures of Dom Cella, and he looks like a guy who's right out of the Goodfellas. I mean, he is really a serious (laughs) dude. And all these guys make a lot of money after 1920 for some reason.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and so to further incriminate my uh, great-grandfather, when <laughs> when you look at—because uh, there's a report that my cousin uh, Jim Barnes did uh, in, when he went to Sonoma State. That's where a lot of my source material is coming from for this. And it's, it talks about the house and his life and all that. After the nineteen thirties, it's very strange how he was able to acquire like five houses on Cherry Street. Yeah, quickly he he had a business. He had a building where he ran his operations, uh, where I want to say Johnny Garlics was, and now yes. it's across the street from Lucky's. I think Mike's at the Crossroads was there as well. Was the it's yeah, yeah. Um, so this is I didn't even know this, but he had pr- like property holdings that were all over this west side of Petaluma, yeah. and it is very funny the timing. Of, and that's I guess all I will say on the subject. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's interesting. It's the heart of the. Depression. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's, well,
2: they built they built a, a large Mediterranean house. What is it? 1935. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. I well, mean, that, we're going to talk in a moment now about like the prohibition and all that stuff. But that's the thing that I find most interesting about these guys that were involved in that. Without judgment, I mean, I, I think it's very fun and cool. I think I think crime can be fun and cool. But but it is funny that you'd be so blatant about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> So so let's get into that. Um, 1919, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution is ratified, and now it is a crime to produce, transport, or sell alcohol. (laughs) Um, Just for somebody who doesn't know why that is, uh, why did our country do that? That's you, John. Oh, Oh, Katie, good. Katie.
3: John, you're going to have to back me up on this, but... um, Alcohol had become a problem. Um, at one point, it was safer to drink um, alcoholic beverages than it was to drink water. And um, so, you, you know the story about Johnny Appleseed planting all the apples. Well, those apples went to make cider. Oh yeah, a hard cider. So um, wives got sick and tired of of husbands drinking up the paycheck and they began to complain about this. And there were some ardent prohibition anti-alcohol types in high places. And the, the temperance movement got rolling. You know the story of Carrie Nation and her hatchet smashing up saloons in the Midwest.
2: And we had quite a temperance and movement in Petaluma.
3: We did. Um, John, do you want to take it from here?
0: yeah, well, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there was a problem with alcoholism. A lot of it had to do with the production, not really of um, let's say cultures like uh, from Italy or other places where people drank beer and wine, but it had to do with hard liquor and and the gin craze that started. and gin was very cheap. and um, hard liquor became a real problem. And so the temperance movement did come out of that. But by the turn of the century, um, the temperance movement didn't get far, and another group stepped in called the Anti-Saloon League. And this was comprised of a bunch of men. A lot of them were Southerners. They were all teetotalers. They were evangelists. And they mounted this incredible PR marketing campaign and and lobbying campaign to get people elected, uh, essentially in D.C. And they became really the arm of the whole movement toward prohibition. And then during the war... When World War One broke out, there was a shortage of grain, and they wanted to prioritize sh- shipping grain to the troops and whatnot. And so they put a temporary ban on alcohol that time, at that time because they didn't want people making hard liquor or even beer out of that. And then uh, there was a lot of pressure right after the war to extend the prohibition entirely. And the Anti-Saloon League, was, which was really brilliant, they were backed by the KKK, um, they managed to push it through Washington, essentially. Um, is, is so that that's because- how it happened. And You know, a, a lot of cultures, like the Italian culture here, people who would grown up with wine and whatnot, that was part of their lifestyle. Um, and they really didn't really understand why this would be. Um, there were exceptions to prohibition. You could make your own wine or your own beer in the cellar and whatnot for your own consumption but not sell it or transport it. So A lot of people around here did that. Um, There were still exceptions for wine that was used for religious sacraments, especially among the Catholics. So a number of the the wineries stayed in business to some degree for that. And then you could get uh, medicine from a doctor for sore throat that was alcohol-based. And suddenly there was this, there was this, uh, there was like an epidemic of sore throats for years here. Um, and the doctors and the pharmacists were making money hand over fist prescribing, uh, fruit syrup for all these people.
2: Wasn't it? I think it was Claret as, as yeah, was the, it was main, Claret. You a would gargle claret with Claret.
0: gargle, that's what they called it.
1: So Sonoma <laughs> County had a response to this and, uh, that also took place in Petaluma. So let's talk about what happened in the aftermath of that. Cause not everybody was for the temperance movement.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, it, you know, and it's a lot like what we've seen in our lifetimes with marijuana. You know, medical marijuana was was the was the um, was the of the time. So um, in Petaluma, essentially, um, people look the other way, and so in the from what I've seen in my research, um, you know, Volpe's uh, Tavern or Volpe's Grocery was originally called Solari's. It was owned by another Italian couple. And most groceries in those times had a little tavern, usually in the back. And so they had had that set up there uh, when they opened up in 1908. And then when Prohibition came in, they they sealed off the tavern at the back. But people pretty much still went back there if you were in the know. Um, And they didn't get busted. So what happened, the city was kind of upset because they were collecting a lot of revenues from liquor licenses. And now that revenue was gone. So in lieu of getting uh, a liquor license payment, they would call up a place like Solari's Tavern and say, we're coming over to bust the tavern in an hour. And they'd give them an hour to clear out their inventory, except the Solari's had to leave like one pint of what they called jackass whiskey under the, under the bar there. And then the cops would come in, and they'd search the place, and they'd find the jackass whiskey, and they'd they'd arrest Solari, they'd walk him down to City Hall, they'd book him, and they'd release him, and they'd fine him. The fine would be equivalent to what his liquor license would have been annually, right? So that's how the city sort of maintained its own revenue stream. The, The problem got to be when the feds didn't like that. And the feds would kind of make these raids where they'd force the cops to take them around, and they'd raid people from time to time. But um, like in Volpe's case, Volpe took over that little tavern on the corner there in 1925. Volpe's was never busted the entire time. In 1929, they were busted on one of the feds' raids, and that was it. But otherwise, they continued serving liquor in the back room, essentially, throughout that entire time.
1: How many other businesses were doing what Volpe's was doing in this town, do you think?
0: Well, what happened with some of the other uh, bars in town is they converted to soda fountains. So my great-uncle, Will Casey, was involved with this gang where they had a bar down where the American Hotel was, which is where Putnam uh, Park is, right there on on the boulevard um, next to Starbucks. And they converted it to a soda fountain, but they also had a... They had a fishing and uh, rod and gun club down the river. And that's where they ran their booze in and out of. Um, And they would bring the booze up to the soda fountain and then they would serve booze from the soda fountain, calling it soda, soda, essentially. (laughs) So one day they're all in there and the cops walk in. And so the first thing they do when the cops walk in, they set up a bunch of shot glasses. and They start pouring the alcohol on the counter to serve the cops because that's what they always do. Free booze. And. They the cops have got the fence with them, and the cops say, no, it's not going to be that way this time. We've got a gentleman with us, and you're all under arrest. And they immediately grab all the shot glasses and the, and the booze, and they start pouring it down the sink as fast as they can. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Did that work? But they're
0: all busted and arrested. Uh-huh. And, and that sort of thing would go on a lot. And then they went down when my uh, great-uncle got arrested that the feds got on a bunch of boats, and they, they, it was the only way to get to the Rod and Gun Club, and they had card games going down there, they had booze going, and they, they made a midnight raid by boat into the Rod and Gun Club and arrested everybody, and that's when he got thrown the slammer. Um, and he was the general manager of the largest grocery store in town, which was at um, at Pelemo Boulevard, where Western hits, where uh, Central Market is today. Wow. And he, he, they sold both retail groceries, but they also sold grain to the ranchers. And They had a big warehouses in the back along the river. And that's how they tra- – he ran the Sea Scouts, and he would have the Sea Scouts load up the booze and bring it up at okay. night <laughs> okay. and unload it there. And um,
2: That was doing their good so, deed.
0: Yeah, he would drive around. His job was to drive around all the ranches selling grain and, you know, dealing with his accounts and collecting money and stuff. And, of course – that, the, the ranches were a network, most of them Swiss-Italian, just a network of sugar coming up from the South Bay uh, to the ranches and brought into stills in town. And then once they were uh, made into alcohol, tin cans were taken back to the ranches as sort of transportation points before they were shipped up the coast or whatever they went, you know. So he was, like we were talking about, Tom was talking about the transportation guys whether it was, you know, Angelo Ages or my great-uncle Will Casey, these guys were, they were moving things around constantly.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that, because um, these these farms out west from us, there was a lot of illegal booze production going on during this period, correct?
0: Yeah, apparently, and it was, um, some of them had stills out there and, um, in the 20s, definitely, because there was water, where they had water going on as well. And in one of the big busts, the way the feds found it, this one still down on, I think it was somewhere on, on Chileno Valley or on I Street or something, is that there was this grove of oak trees that had just grown like no other trees ah, in the yes. area. And it turned out that the the, the off from the still was going down and feeding the oaks. Yes, and they really okay. responded to it. They took off. and That was a clue. So there was a lot of that going out. They were the happiest
2: trees in the town. county. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were some... You know, besides that, um, Bill Sobranis used to tell me uh, stories. He'd come down here on Sundays when I'd be working as a kid, and he'd tell me about it. And his favorite stories were mostly about the bootleggers. And one name just kept coming up over and over again, and that was Charlie Garzoli. And, uh, John, can you – he had a dog food uh, production uh, uh, company. Is that correct?
0: Yes, and yeah, was he down producing the river by Weller Street? There, did he
2: actually produce dog food?
0: Apparently, he did that, but that was the front for his real business. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> well, and, and also, of, didn't he, didn't the feds get kind of like uh, led on sort of a wild goose chase in trying to track him down? I mean, there were they kept, like, finding their way to Petaluma, and this is from your book, John, so maybe um, you could help me with this, but basically they, they really wanted to find the action in Petaluma, and they kept, like, tracing the, what, the sugar deliveries, etc., but the trails kept going cold. And then Garzoli, who Tom just mentioned, w- was really at the center of a really big ring that r- led to a bust.
0: Because they kept focusing on the ranches, and Garzoli had moved his still into the heart of the, the warehouse district down by the river, um, and he kind of came to this kind of late. It was not till, you know, he was in his early thirties, around the late twenties, that he got into this, from what, from what I can tell. Um, and the way they brought the sugar up, the sugar was uh, offloaded uh, at ports down in San Leandro, and then um, it would be shipped over to Marin. And what Garzoli's guys would do is they would take. They didn't want to have trucks because that was too conspicuous for the Feds. So. They took sedans, big sedans, and they took all the seats out except for the driver's seat. And then they would load those sedans up with sugar, and the drivers would take them out to a ranch somewhere in the west of town. And then another uh, truck or car would bring them into Garzoli's uh, dog food uh, mill downtown, essentially. And he had a still there, and the still was designed so that it could be dismantled within an hour. And moved away because they'd usually what usually happened is the local cops would tip them off that the feds were on their way you know somebody would be someone was on the payroll usually um so he could move the still around and and that was one of the reasons the feds could never nail anybody down they either lost the trail once they got back into the uh countryside uh, or they arrived at places where the still was dismantled and, and pulled away essentially um so that's that's how they were going, and and what the interesting thing about Garzoli is um, he grew up from a, a big ranching family um, out in Rock, essentially, one of the pioneer ranching families, um, is that um, he continued um, illegal manufacture of alcohol after Prohibition was lifted in 1933, and the reason was it's very much very akin to what's going on with the marijuana industry here in this county is they put so many onerous taxes and requirements and health uh, requirements on the manufacture of the alcohol that it just didn't pan out. To make, to make, You couldn't make a profit anymore. So it was more profitable for these guys to keep the illegal trade going, just like we're seeing in, in the marijuana industry right now. And that's what he did. He really made his, I mean, he'd made a lot of money by 33, but he made millions between thirty-three and thirty-seven when he was finally
1: busted. Your book uh, cites a statistic that at the peak, these—let's uh, see—one of these stills could generate about fifteen hundred worth of liquor a day, which is about twenty-five thousand dollars in yeah. today's terms. That's huge money. Twenty-five thousand a day, my God!
0: It's <laughs> a lot. They were moving. They were selling, and this is why the feds—the um, feds—were got really frustrated after Prohibition because. Petaluma, they determined, was one of the biggest illegal um, liquor manufacturers on the whole West Coast. Garzoli was providing liquor all the way up the coast through Oregon, Washington, Idaho, into Nevada, all the way down Southern California. A major distribution hub here. Um, and that's what really drove him crazy, is trying to nail him. So, And he, like we were just talking about, your great-grandfather building that beautiful Mediterranean home Mediterranean, yes. at the top of West Street there. Yeah. Um,
1: 210
0: Garzoli West Street. 210
1: built, West Street. Yeah, yeah. It's a beauty. <laughs> 210 it's West. Yes. Yeah.
0: And Garzoli built this beautiful Mediterranean home out on Redwood Highway next to the Twin Oaks Tavern. It's just north of Twin Oaks on the left side as you're driving. It's still there. Yeah. And it was a show beautiful. place. And yeah. like you're saying, Jim, it's like these guys didn't hide it. I mean, oh. how's a guy running a dog food company yeah. going to afford this man, essentially in the middle of the Depression, yeah. a-, a mansion out here, you know?
1: And you can. Put it into your GPS, if you're curious, 5865 Old Redwood Highway. <laughs> I mean, Tom's making a face at me, but it's in your book, John.
2: <laughs> some, some friends of mine live, live out there. And, and I actually, <laughs> hey, it's in the book. Sure it is in the book. Yeah. Pretty, I noticed they're yeah. putting a fence up right now, Tom, so they? they should be okay. okay. Good for them.
1: Well, let's go into yeah. the end of that raid, because I had never heard this Garzoli story before, and it's just like— a really wonderful unique Petaluma story and it's it's incredible so they uh w- w- the feds uh what did they they spotted louis Boytano, huh
0: and louis was a uh, uh, associate of garzoli 30 years old and uh it just happened to be driving along east washington street uh uh near hopper and he spotted uh uh, Botano's car, for some reason they suspected Botano. Botano had a welding company in town, and so he followed Botano over to the dog food packing plant that Garzoli owned over on Weller. Um, and um, apparently he, this is where it gets kind of interesting, uh, Botano went inside and, they, and to meet with Garzoli, and then they somehow got tipped off that the feds were after them and they slipped out the side door, um, so they did raid the place, but they didn't find anybody inside. And they had tried to dismantle their still inside the dog packing plant, but they didn't hadn't been able to pull that off before they got arrested. Um, so, but they knew it was Garzoli, and they knew it was Botano, so both of them were arrested. Um, what's interesting is a network of people, like you're saying, were tied into this. Silvio Volpi, who was running. Uh, Volpe's at the time uh, with his mother, essentially, he put up the $5,000 for Garzoli's bail. $5,000 in the middle of the Depression was a lot of money, yeah. you know? Um, and then the feds essentially uh, arrested another dozen people that they believe were linked to the Garzoli's uh, ring. A lot of them were very prominent Petaluma families, including oh, the Bloom yes. family, which is yes. a big ranching family out in Chileno Valley. And uh, There was one of Garzoli's partners was Americo Bloom, Bloom, uh, who ran the ranch out in Toledo. And his brother, Adolf Bloom, was a very prominent banker here in Petaluma. And once the the government subpoenaed the brother, who was the banker, Adolf Adolf Bloom, the day after he got the subpoena, he owned, um, and Tom helped me on this, at the old Cedar Grove place. He did, yes. which is out by the Lucky Store at Payran Boulevard North there. Uh, It was a resort. owned that whole it used to be an amusement park in the 1890s. He owned all of Cedar Grove he had a beautiful home there. He went into the chicken coop next to his home the morning after he got the subpoena and he tried to hang himself he failed and instead he went out and he threw himself in the river uh, next to the, the ranch there and drowned himself and that's how he's found. So Uh, There was was no record of um, money laundering going on, but it's very suspicious that such a provident person and so well-liked respected would suddenly just kill himself.
2: And that's always been the Uh, saddest part of the story, because really, when you look at what happened, um, uh, Boitano and Garzoli, I think, spent two years in prison and were fined $10,000. But their life continued after that, and, and uh, I don't think any of them did too poorly after that. And I, I always hate the part about Adolf killing himself. I think that was, uh, I think he just, he jumped the gun on that. I wished he had been patient to see how that would fall.
1: Is there any thought that maybe he didn't kill himself? No. They, no. they found
0: him. Okay. I, there's no sign. His wife is the one who found him, yeah. and uh, it was very early morning, and um, there's no sign that there was anybody else at the ranch at the time. Um, I think it was a shame thing. I think he was such a prominent person in town. Um, I don't think he could hold his head up after that. Um, and as Tom said, Garzoli. He, Garzoli was actually um, after he served a couple of years at, at McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington, and then um, he was pardoned at some point after he That's got correct. out. Yeah, um, and he 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 bought it on the ranch out west. He maintained his mansion here in pengrove and um he actually passed away at in pengrove at the mansion there in the late
2: 18, 90s 18, yeah 19, but he went on the lead a, a
0: fine life he,
2: he made it to 1997
1: do we know why yeah. he was pardoned because what he was convicted of with uh boitano was defrauding the government of a million dollars in taxes which taxes? was 17 million dollars <laughs> in today's <laughs> yeah. terms um yeah. how did he pull off getting a pardon
0: i you know i don't know i i i've I, I, some political pressure somehow with somebody, um, but I wasn't able to run that down. How the pardon came about, I don't know if it was a matter. I, you know, it, it would make sense. It's sort of like the pardons that are being given out about around marijuana these days. You know, but he continued that ring after prohibition. So, you know, um, it's it's much like they got those gangsters in Chicago. It was always for taxes. They couldn't get them for for actually. Bootlegging and and running illegal stills—they got it for tax evasion. Now,
1: is Bloomfield named after the Bloom brothers family?
0: I don't believe so, but I don't quote oh, me I on thought,
1: that. I thought that was the case. Well, so funny that uh, the Volpe's find themselves in the middle of that story. And before yeah. we conclude this this conversation, I do believe that we should talk about the supposed tunnels uh, amidst our oh, group yeah. here. There are different opinions as to whether <laughs> there are tunnels from the Phoenix to Volpe's and yeah. vice versa. So, Katie, you, you believe very strongly that they did exist. Um, why do you believe that there were tunnels that were uh, carved during that time?
3: Part, part of me wants to just because it it makes so much sense with the um with petalumas thumbing their nose at prohibition yeah. it makes sense that that could happen um some people that i have talked to say yes of course there are tunnels down there i've seen them but i am going to defer to tom because if anybody knows the truth yeah. it's
1: tom
2: you know when i was a kid working here uh my friends and I spent many hours under these under the, the floor of the Phoenix, looking for those tunnels.
1: And for context, the tunnels were in case they had been raided over yeah. there. That everybody drinking in the back room would go underneath, yeah. uh, w- you know, uh, Washington and Keller, and then come up in the middle of the Phoenix Theater, yes. or, uh, then the uh, Hill Opera House, I guess. It was, right? Uh, it would have been yeah, California, been the California, California, yeah. and um, the feds would be none the wiser because everybody was just you know watching, watching the a movie. movie. What, what's the big deal? Uh,
2: that's the story. The tunnels were the escape from the bar. Uh, under the under the streets and and uh, into the Phoenix theater so uh, with that in mind uh, my generation several of my friends and I spent some time under the floors and I think Freddie Gears, who was a good friend of John of mine who has recently passed I think Freddie spent some time under the floors with me and Danny and Rankin and and uh, I don't know John were you ever part of that part no, of the lo- no <laughs>
0: okay. I, I have claustrophobia I couldn't Yeah, yeah you
2: are a lot smarter about it we never found anything. <laughs> But also, as you know, I think the research we found that it was—I don't think they were ever that afraid of being uh, busted because uh, they had a system. If 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 you would if you could get caught with just one bottle on a regular basis, you could pay your taxes in that way. You could, and the city would be happy. And also, I knew that Volpe's had a back door uh, leading out of the bar, so you could just slip out the back door into the uh, into the alley and down the street and, and away you were. And, of course. So, uh, I'm not thinking. After spending many hours, and quite frankly, uh, I still have kids coming up and asking if they can go and dig under my floor <laughs> to, to find those tunnels. And the story from here is there's no tunnels. Oh, we're we're done digging looking for tunnels at the Phoenix. Okay. So okay.
3: That's, okay. You that's my story. Man.
2: But I gotta tell you, when we would ask John Volpe. Uh, John, uh, Mr. Volpe, is there a tunnel there where the tunnels ever there? His story was always the same. Well, I'm not going to tell you they're there and I'm not going to tell you they're not.
1: And oh. as of, you know, June, 2020, which is when we're recording this, John Volpe is still a presence oh, at bet. Volpe's. Yep. You can still see yeah. him walking, you know, Volpe's isn't open because of the coronavirus right now, but you can still see him walking and getting his newspaper in oh, the morning yes. on the streets of Petaluma. You bet. And uh, that, again, is just one of the many cool wow. things about Petaluma. We talk yeah. about Silvio, who was his father, right? Yes. Right. And, and now John Volpe, what do you think? He's in his mid-70s, pushing 80, perhaps? Oh, he's in his 80s. That's 80s, his 80s, yeah. 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 Still, yeah. Playing,
0: still playing accordion, too. Still playing accordion, mm-hmm. wonderfully
2: yeah wonderfully
0: which was his father's instrument as well sylvia yeah. was really an accordionist that's what he wanted to be yeah he actually i really want to run a grocery store
2: sylvia was was a rock star in petaluma actually he and yeah. he and his band yep. were playing all the the right parties in those days in the 20s yep.
1: well let's get into uh the 40s and 50s I want to talk about the egg bust a little bit
0: yeah i want to i want to stop because i think i want to bring bill Sabranis back in the story and he cool. worked a lot with bill and um and I, I just don't think we can do an episode without Bill Sabrentis. Um yeah. And, I, you know, I will say this about the egg bust. Basically, uh, it was we were really hit, hard hit here during the Depression. And then during the war, eggs were a premium. And um, the egg market rebounded to some degree, essentially during the war years. But as I mentioned before, after the war, all these factory farms started um, down in the Central Valley with refrigeration trucks and whatnot. And Petaluma just couldn't, uh, they didn't have the scale. These little farms didn't have the scale to produce the kind of eggs at the kind of prices they were doing in these factory farms. And that's largely by, um, really, by the early 50s, people were just folding up their egg farms. Uh, Some survived until the early 60s, but a lot of people got out of eggs uh, in the 50s, essentially. And things started to change in town um, and what happens after the war is is going into the suburban boom. Is that's when the suburban boom comes to, into play? But I want to. I just want to go back a few years and talk about Gelardi's Bar and Mike Gilardi. Yes, because he sort of really made this um, transition from the depression into the, this new heyday of the late '40s and early '50s. Um, and he started Mike had Grown up. Uh, on a ranch, uh, west of town, uh, Swiss Italian again, uh, but he was kind of a damper Dan he didn't want to work on the ranch. And so he o- opened up a cigar store downtown on the corner of Washington and Kentucky, uh, where the parking lot for the bank of America is today. And in 1937, he got this inspiration. A lot of the bars had started coming back to town and, and whatnot. And they came back as taverns and, and saloons essentially like they were before prohibition but what had changed during prohibition is that women could now drink with men because you met in speakeasies without sight of the public eye and women didn't go into saloons or bars before prohibition but now they did during the speakeasy phase
2: and it was kind also of payback to the temperance union
0: beer was hard to get and wine wasn't that easy to get uh cocktails became the hot thing um so there was this whole cocktail culture that developed with men and women during Prohibition. And after Prohibition in 37, Gilardi decided that he would create the swankiest cocktail lounge in the North Bay, you know, north of San Francisco, essentially. And so he closed down the cigar store, he took over the barbershop next door, and he built out this really swanky uh, cocktail lounge we have a tiki uh, bar? on the corner there. And to you know, attract was, women to the club. he he had music, he had dancing, he had a baby blue pl- baby blue powder room for them. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: but didn't he turn and he him these a-
0: really handsome mixicologists, you know who were making drinks behind the bar? And this became the swanky crowd and and it was a little rocky during you know, certainly during the war times when people guys would come back uh, on leave and stuff. things were happening there. There were a lot of new people, a lot of women came to the area working at Hamilton Field. My mother was one of them. Uh, Tilardi's was the place to hang out and meet GIs during that time. And then after the war, it becomes a really hot spot. And uh, Bill Sobranis was part of that uh, whole scene at Tilardi's Corner, as it was known. And he coined the phrase for this crowd. He called it the 400 Club, which is a phrase from uh, the turn of the century back in Manhattan uh, the 400 Club was the sort of the hottest society names in Manhattan. And for Bill, the crowd that met at Jolari's Corner, that was the 400 Club. It was the Cafe Society of Petaluma. And they would dress up uh quite elegantly they'd go on trips together to um san francisco they'd go up to the russian river in the summers the big bands harry james and one i'd be playing up there they'd do dancing they'd party and and jim uh we were talking your grandfather jim and your grandmother topsy were best friends with my uh, mother and father and they were all part of the 400 club uh, that met there. And, they, and there was, there was highballs, there was dancing, there was dice playing. Uh, they had discreet uh, betting on horse races in the back the back of the bar. Uh, my father essentially was adopted by Mike Gilardi. Uh, my father had been raised, his father died when he was five, and uh, he was going through trade school after the war if he got out of the service. And he made his money working essentially at Gilardi's. As a, a bartender, and Mike took him under his wing like a father figure, essentially. So, th- uh, th- this was really the heart of the cafe society, and this is where Bill really got a lot of his sources through, through the 50s, really, the late 40s, the, the early 50s, when he started writing his column in what, Katie, like 54 or something. I think this so is that- where he kept his ear glued to the, to the ground, essentially, to pick up the gossip in
1: town. Yeah, I mean, he then would, you know, live in this town for another 50-some-odd years writing for that paper, a little less than 50 years. But, I mean, one of the most notable recent characters of Petaluma history, I would say. I mean, who tops Bill Sabranis in terms of, like, local celebrities of the last 50 years?
3: You don't. You don't. And the man, as far as I can tell, never said a bad word about anybody. He was a kind, discreet person.
2: Yeah. He was yeah. he, he was he was the last of a dying breed of, of press people because I mean you yes. look at you look at how the press yeah. is operating nowadays and and uh, everything is free game but uh, bill was bill could get an interview with almost anybody because they knew he wasn't gonna say a bad word about them
1: how did he balance that though Katie because you worked with him in the Argus newsroom right or at least uh, you both worked I, for that company well-
3: he never worked in the newsroom.
1: <laughs> well, what well, I he, mean, he worked in Gilardi's. I mean,
3: I, I, he, brought, I, he brought his column into us, or um, later his wife Jane would type it and um, send it to us.
1: I, I guess what I'm but, curious about is of all the journalists that I read and the ones that I know— there's always you know the interest in getting the real story the story that's not printed in the newspaper and I, I wonder do you think it was just because he liked to be in the know so much and he liked to be uh, the the most famous people meter who's taken photos with the most famous people and all that do you think that influenced the way that he would cover things or do you th- I think I think that, that
3: being being there being the man was more important than writing and I didn't I didn't read him in. I have read back issues, but of course, I wasn't around in the early fifties when he was in his heyday. Um, Bill's Bill was remarkable, and I say this with all the love in the world of writing about someone and saying absolutely nothing about them. Yes,
2: <laughs> absolutely.
3: <laughs> so, he,
2: and thank God for that. I think a lot of yes. uh, a lot of uh, marriages were saved by that. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Well, and so, you know, for a modern-day Petalumen, um, there's a statue of him next to the Lemongrass Thai restaurant. Is that correct? That
3: is correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, we do a competition here in the Phoenix uh, every October, the, the beard-growing competition. The, yeah, yeah. The Whiscarino. The
2: Whiscarino. 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 And and his, Arino, yeah. The, yeah. His name is and associated
1: with that. That was Bill. You bet. And
3: also, it's still the Bill Sobrenas Halloween Festival at uh, the uh, Plaza Shopping Center, because October was Bill's month. He was born in October, and he always made a big deal out of that. So it's still the the uh, annual, official Bill Sobrenas
1: Festival. So, so to somebody who didn't grow up with him, didn't know him, and is just listening to this episode because they stumbled upon it, why do you think this person has embedded such such a mark on this town? Um, we're still talking about him in 2020, and he's been gone for over a decade now, right? Uh, right, he, uh,
3: 2004.
1: Yeah, so why, why is this man such a central figure?
3: Because of his unabashed love for Petaluma.
1: Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh
3: Uh-huh. Almost every column ended with Boost Petaluma. Join the Boost Petaluma movement. Yes, it did. He loved this town. This town was everything to him. Yeah,
2: absolutely. You know, Bill, one of my favorite stories of Bill was some friends of mine. Bill had somehow hooked up with Frank Sinatra, and he managed to get uh, in Frank's. uh, Bill didn't drive. Uh, Bill made it around the world on foot. And he could catch a ride with just about anybody. So he caught a ride somehow with Frank Sinatra from San Francisco up to Tahoe. And some, <laughs> some friends of my parents uh, were going to a club at one, of the, at one of the casinos to see Frank Sinatra, and Les Brand, Brown's band was, was uh, backing him up. And they walk into the club, and there's Bill Sobranis being the guest conductor for Les Brown. <laughs>
3: So, Bill had no nerves at all.
0: Yeah, He no. could
3: talk his way into or out of anything.
2: Yes. Yep. So the way the story goes, that by the end of the night, Frank had kind of figured out, wait a minute, who is this guy? You'd have to know Bill and the way he talked. He was a very fast, low, close talker. He'd lean in. <gasps> And he'd talk really low, and he'd talk really fast. Like, well, I just got go to, we got to go. Then we're all going to go and meet at the you know, do that. And So apparently, Frank finally decided, whoa, this guy's out of his mind. So he puts him on his limo, tells the limo driver, take him anywhere he wants to go, but take him.
0: And that's how Bill got back to town. I, I wanted to say, I- I've read. I've probably read 80% of his columns from, 1954 on, and I would say in the 50s and pretty much up to the late 60s, maybe, he was actually a fairly decent three-dot journalist, as they're, they're called. I mean, he blended news and gossip. He had homespun tales of all the social clubs and colorful visitors and whatnot and local trivia, but he actually wrote some decent reported stories, and then after that, and Katie, you probably know this very well. They're just kind of regurgitated stories from the past. I mean, you'll find the same stories in like five columns over 40 years, essentially. That's right, yes. He'll just pull them up again, and he'll say the same thing about what he wrote about Katie Watts in 1965. He'll be writing about, again, 1995. Because
2: I think that's about when his his lifestyle and the way uh, Petaluma changed radically in the 60s. Yeah. I think some of the clubs and bars and the places that he used to frequent— we're starting to disappear, and this is where he was well, getting all that's of the
0: That's exactly influence. right, and it, he became more nostalgic. Yeah, and I think in the fifties and the sixties, as Kitty says, he was really a major booster. And and much like Bert Kerrigan, who was the other booster, he really wanted to put pedalum on the map. And as Kitty says, he wanted to be in the center of that process. Yes. I, don't, I don't think it was ego. He just he just loved the vibe. Yes. He loved the crowd. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and I think you know the the, the most brilliant thing he did with. Back at Mike Gillardi's once again in '54, was to launch the wrist wrestling yes. championship of the world, yeah. essentially. Absolutely. Um, you know, th- 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 this seems like a bizarre thing to do today, but who else would dream of staging a wrist wrestling contest that would just be, dominate the world, essentially?
2: Yeah. Made um, perfect and, sense.
0: And that's what he and Gillardi came up with. Um, yeah. But, you know, an and then with they, Dave and they just rolled with that, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: It United, got huge. In 68, uh, Charles Schultz put it in a Peanuts cartoon. Yes, that's true. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, a Snoopy, the, the dog, came to Petaluma to participate, only he was disqualified because he lacked a thumb. <laughs> <He> <laughs> lacked a thumb.
1: Uh, again, John, this is from your book, but in 69, the event was covered by ABC's Wide World of Sports, yeah. and it became one of the show's most popular events yeah. Um, but this is. Holy where... shit, I didn't know this. In 1972, Sobranis wrist wrestled then Governor Ronald Reagan for a photo op. That <laughs> oh, rules. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah
0: and Reagan. definitely and Match. It was a great shot. Uh, Reagan broke uh, Bill's ribs.
1: <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, because he slammed his arm down so hard, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah apparently. And then Sobranis. <laughs> F- I, I went to
0: school with my aunt, and my aunt describes it as St. Vincent's. He was a kid with ADD, essentially. He oh, yeah. Taught, like Tom said, he talked fast. He was uh, uh, always looking around, glancing at things, shiny objects. Uh, <laughs> and he, she said he ate a pencil a day. He was so nervous, he just chewed on his pencils and ate a pencil a day.
1: Yeah. Uh, and
0: when I was a kid, um, he tried dating my mother during the war, He during the Merchant Marines, as I recall. He was held on leave, and he, he drove her up to what, what is La Cresta now, and tried to kiss her, and she slapped the hell out of him. And <laughs> after, my mother was a very attractive woman. And after that, Bill would always come to our house when I was a kid, and after dinner, he, my mother would sit him down for dinner with us, and then my parents would get up and go in the other room to watch TV, and my sister and I would have to sit in the kitchen and wash the dishes. And Bill would just sit there and talk constantly. Yes. You know, he, he had just come from the bars or whatever, you know, and— um, so I heard a lot of stories from Bill and a lot of them just didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> they were yeah.
2: great to listen to. They really and were.
1: And I should I should note I mean, he just kept yeah.
2: it
0: going all yeah. the time and he yeah. he dropped all kinds of names, you know, he connect yeah. he could connect so many things together that they never added up but they were kind of fascinating as he went along.
1: Yeah, I should note that Sabrina said that Reagan cheated and that is why he won. Um Yeah. <laughs> but uh then John you talk about how Gillardi's uh was uh, destroyed in 1967. Uh, when Washington yeah, and I Street... think
0: what, to what Tom was saying, that, that's sort of when the town starts really turning. Yeah. The old-timers are gone, and they tore down Gilardi's to widen and Washington Street there. Yeah. Um, and it hit the you know, wrecking ball, brought it down, and a lot of the old joints just started drying oh, up. Fading. And I think that was a real turning of the town at that point.
2: It was. Um, I think, you know, his last vestige was probably the hideaway. Downstairs in the hideaway was the Bill yeah. Sobranis room. For quite a while, but I even by the mid seventies, I think it was gone. So that was just things shift and change. The the sixties were a bellwether
1: in a couple ways for this town, especially. Um, and let's let's shift into development of the east side huh? because yeah. the those wheels started turning before the sixties, but ultimately, Same kind of thing. these two things that we're talking about oh, were yeah. were fairly separate, but kind of ended up doing similar things, which is the face of the town and the town that you knew yeah. uh, in the fifties looked very different by the time he got to the seventies.
2: It's true. You know, and, and in that same period, uh, it wasn't just Jalaris that we lost. We lost, uh, the old city hall at the, where the A street parking lot is. we just, uh, Petaluma had kind of in the fifties decided they wanted to do away with some of our old past beautiful buildings and, and, uh, they were openly taking them out. And, uh, gee, there was that glorious brick building across the street from the Phoenix here that I wish we'd been able to keep that. It was uh, it was a, a set of shops and uh, I, like there were apartments up above or something like that. I'm, I'm a little hazy on that now because I was such a little kid when I first saw it. And then I remember it as just a pile of bricks for many, many years. Uh, but uh, Petaluma in, in, in the 50s had begun to uh, shed its past and move towards... Uh, becoming i think a bedroom community i guess
1: let's talk about the uh the east side development uh tom before we get into that when you were a young man yeah just a boy yeah you were with your father ah and you were with i think your <laughs> yeah. uncle
2: no it was my godfather your uh, godfather denny dunlop and my dad and i and i think uh, my mom and my godmother uh this was probably early 60s and we were driving out washington street Heading east, uh, we had crossed McDowell Boulevard, which was still, it was still we were, and by the time we had crossed, uh, boy, gone down what would be the equivalent of three or four blocks, we were in the country. And my dad was pointing out to the right, and it was just these big, it was a spring day, and it had just, the the fields had exploded, Um, uh, maybe a thousand acres, I don't know how many acres, of mustard weed. And it was just this beautiful golden field, as far as you could see. And he motioned across all of this as we were driving. He says, we're going to have 10,000 houses in there in the next 20 years. And I, I, I remember thinking, well, how do you do that? What? What does 10,000 of anything look like? And I think, I think we achieved it, unfortunately. I can't imagine how many houses are truly there, but it's possible we have 10,000 houses there now.
1: And let's, uh, John, let's go into the, uh, the tale of the last cattle roundup at the Caulfield feedlot.
0: Yeah, and I, I think um, I didn't put these two things together, but I think 1948 was a big turning point in, in, in the town of Petaluma, and it was after World War II, and a lot of the GIs were coming back. A lot of them had been stationed out here, whether at the Presidio or Two Rock Ranch or down at Hamilton Air Force Base and um, from other parts of the country, and they decided they wanted to live here. And uh, Petaluma seemed like a really great little community to to move to. And so we have a real influx of young, married couples coming to Petaluma right after the war, and there's a housing shortage. And it starts to really build up by 48. And um, on the east side, um, we had a a stockyard, essentially, the Caulfield Stockyards at Lakeville and Lindbergh Lane, which is where the Lucky Mall is today. And the Caulfield family goes back to the 1870s. Here, uh, they ran cattle. Uh, they were the, the cattle dealer for Jack London uh, for a long time. And and uh, old man Caulfield's son, Tom Caulfield, took over the business in the 20s, and he developed a bunch of meat markets around town. Um, so, and he was he was also an entertainer. It was much like Silvio uh, Volpe. He he was an actor. And actually, before he came back to run the stockyards and the cattle business, he went off and he traveled in a minstrel show, and he did theater all around the country and whatnot. He came back to Petaluma. He still put on a lot of theater here. I've heard about but that he show. ran the meat markets, he ran the stockyards, and he had an annual roundup where uh, the ranchers, the cattle ranchers would bring their cattle to his stockyards there at Lakeville in Lundberg Lane, and then they would have this roundup where they'd um, drive the cattle over to his slaughterhouse, which was down McDowell Boulevard by um, somewhere along Lindbergh there. But it was, it was more, it wasn't really a long cattle drive. It was more an annual event, a big party. And they'd meet um, at the sock yard in a, little, um, in a little room there in the mornings. And they had a bunch of brands of all the different cattle ranches from around town. They would be blazing on the walls there and they'd have a few drinks, and the Caulfields were Irishmen, so they'd tell a lot of stories, and then they'd go off and they have this cattle drive. So forty-eight was the last year they made the cattle drive because forty-eight is the year that they started early developments uh, of the suburban side of the east side of Petaluma. Um, and it's, just, it's also the same year that the state approved putting in a freeway through uh, Highway 101, turning into a freeway, essentially from southern, south of Petaluma all the way up through Santa Rosa.
2: Because up until that point, uh, the freeway was actually Petaluma Boulevard, Main Street, wasn't it? That was Highway 101? Right. it
0: was Redwood Highway, and Redwood Highway ran through Main Street, essentially, in Petaluma. And um, the merchants loved that, because uh, what happened is once the Golden Gate bridge open in 1937, suddenly all these people were coming up, especially in the summer, to go to the Russian River. And Petaluma was a stop along the way. And a lot of bars and restaurants and even the hotels in Petaluma, Hotel Petaluma, they made a lot of money with people going back and forth from the river. Uh, the Bohemian Club, uh, Petaluma was a big stopover at the Hotel Petaluma for drinks on your way to the Bohemian Club up there. So the merchants didn't want to lose uh, that drive-through traffic. But by 19, about 1948, 1950, there was so much traffic coming through. I I read a statistic that in 1947, um, there were an average of 13,000 cars passing through Petaluma every day. Every day. And. uh, yeah. every day. And in the yeah. summer months, 22,000. So imagine, I mean, we complain about yeah. traffic now, but yeah. it must have just been backed up because that was the only way to go north, essentially, mm. right through town. Oh, yeah. So at that point, they did a study and they figured out that a lot of these people were not stopping to shop anywhere, that most of the shopping was coming from petalumens coming from the countryside, coming into town and doing their shopping and going home. So the merchants finally uh, agreed that they would allow the freeway to go outside of the town and not be like Santa Rosa, which had the freeway go through town,
1: right? And also um, kind of yeah. like, I would imagine it'd be kind of like, what is it? Is it Willits uh, when you oh, start Willits, going up yeah. the uh, Cloverdale, 101? Cause Cloverdale. Because that, yeah. that format still exists in some of those towns when you head up to Eureka from here.
2: Well, Willits just got yeah, the bypass. Cloverdale
0: was like that until a yeah. few, till 10 years ago or right. so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you yes. had to go. Through. And Nevada was like that when Tom and I oh, were growing up. That was there were yes. going through
2: Nevada. Yes, to get to any concert we went to, we had to go through Nevada, which was always a fear factor. We needed to make sure yes. that, that we all looked copacetic because we were driving through Nevada. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, and the farmers weren't very happy about the freeway either initially, correct?
0: Initially, no, because they wanted to. And Tom and I talked about this. And I thought they originally were going to run it along Adobe Road, but that wasn't the case. They they were going to run it pretty much where it ran, except when it got to, when the freeway comes into uh, East Washington Street, they were going to put it onto essentially McDowell and then run it out Eli Road and then come out at Eli and Pen Grove and then take it over the hills. And that, a lot of farmers got together, the Grange members, uh, Max Cordham, who was the father of Bill Cordham, the environmentalist, got together and they really petitioned the county and they told them they were going to destroy, like, 121 uh, chicken ranches and dairy ranches at the time. Um, and the county actually um, agreed to change the route to what it is today, essentially. Uh, it was originally planned to be a six-lane freeway, too. I don't know why it only ended up four lanes, but that was the original plan. But, you know, and that, was in, that was approved in 48, and they didn't get around to actually building it until 56.
2: It wouldn't have been needed uh, in 48, because I remember as a kid uh, driving with my dad uh, heading to Santa Rosa or even farther north, and, and uh, boy, you'd get past Washington Street, and you would be out in the country. It would be a pretty quiet drive from here to Santa Rosa for an awful long time. It wasn't until probably the 60s that it really started getting busy, late 60s. Yeah, that
0: has to do also with just commuters within the area, too. So Petaluma had, it started growing uh, after the war. It had 10,000 people by 1950. It had almost 14,000 people by 1955. And they were talking about having 25,000 people within a decade. And sure enough, by the end of the 60s, there were 25,000 people in town. Um, and then, from I think 1969 or 1970, 1973, it jumped to 30,000. So it, the the growth was just uh, incredible. What was going on here? Beginning right after right after they decided where the freeway was going, all the developers moved in and started buying up the land around the freeway, especially around East Washington Street.
1: What do we think the old Petaluma folks thought about this?
2: Well, a lot of the old farmers were uh, happily selling their property. The east side came about because ranchers were making a lot of money selling their property over
1: there. What about the 400 Club guys and girls? Did they, uh, the people who lived on the west side, were they not really enjoying all of these out-of-towners coming in? Or did they like the growth? Did they feel good about it? They liked the growth. They liked the
0: money. So think about it. The chicken industry is going down. The, The dairy industry is hanging in there, but it's starting to consolidate. And um, that's because there's also factory farms. And so the small ranchers, whether you're raising chickens or you're raising dairy, the small ranchers just can't make it. And the larger ranchers just uh, basically en- encompass the smaller ranches and they get bigger. That's They need scale to survive. But the whole agricultural industry is pretty topsy-turvy here. And the town's really depressed. When I was a kid growing up in the early 60s, the downtown was pretty depressed. Um, And it was just a feeling, like Tom says, a lot of those old buildings, they were falling down. People weren't keeping them up. Um, Partly that was because of the malls that were set up across town. It pulled the business out of the downtown. But uh, the city finally enacted uh, some codes where they went around and did inspections. And (laughs) they gave the owners the chance to to fix up and beat code on their building or tear them down. And it it was cheaper in a lot of cases just to tear the buildings down. That's what happened. Um, but I think what happens there, and this gets into my father's story and Tom's too, is that, you know, things really, the first housing developments going around Payran at East Washington, along that Payran route, going out to the boulevard north there, starts to develop with all these GIs coming with their families. By 48, they're building homes there. Um... And then by the early 50s, the the east side of the freeway really takes off in the building. And so there's a lot of money coming into this area. They're spending tons of dough. My father was a plumber. He was trained as a journeyman plumber. And all the guys that that he knew and that we hung out with that are – deer camps and other places they were all contractors and carpenters and painters and hot carriers and pipe fitters and stuff so this became the big boom for the next 20 years essentially with housing and building housing
1: and what did uh tom's dad do in particular Uh,
2: (laughs) my dad sold houses he uh that was that's what he he saw that was the the direction that that uh that money could be made in, in this town. And uh, so he started selling houses with a, a, a crew called LaPori Overton, and they were uh, building and selling houses. They were they were financing and selling houses in some of the newer uh, McDowell uh, areas. I remember when I was a little guy, uh, it was like the Weaverly uh, area. Uh, was it Alta Drive In those areas? They had just built those homes, and it was maybe— Uh, 63, 64, something like that. And it was a very hot summer. And, uh, so he would have myself and my brother, uh, just as they'd finished building the homes, we would have to go and spray down the, uh, the houses. So the stucco wouldn't crack in the heat. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, well, and, and you'll note those homes are still standing. And, uh, they used to call them, uh, ticky tacky homes, but they were built with solid, uh, uh, underlayment floors—they were—they were built with subfloors—and and just uh, by today's standards, they were really built well. And those uh,
3: Alter drive houses are just charming.
2: Yeah, they really are now. That they, they, it they turned out to be okay, but people, yeah. the old schoolers in Petaluma, were complaining about them. Holy cow, this is! Yeah. Look at these places. What are you doing? You're just throwing them up in months, and you're building thousands of them, and it's ridiculous. But uh, heck, those are the the neighborhoods that John and a lot of John and my uh, best friends grew up in.
1: <laughs> Some of oh, yeah. these homes uh, sold for between $105,000 to $125,000. I'm seeing in this link that John sent to me earlier today. Yeah, yeah
0: in the new homes that opened. And the first development was all along that pay ran area, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the person that I didn't realize was so in, involved in all this was Helen Putnam. Uh, we think of Helen Putnam uh, as the mayor in the 70s who who uh, imposed the slow growth movement here, 500 new homes a year, and took that to the Supreme Court and whatnot, and then became a supervisor. But right at the peak of this, in 1947, she, um, she'd come to Petaluma in, in 1931, and uh, she was a school teacher at the junior high, and then she got married, and, and she stepped away from that in the early 40s to have some kids, two children. And then she came back in 1947 and ran for the school board, Because she was the only person on the school board who knew anything about education, they made her the president, and she was president for the next 12 years. And what Helen had to deal with was the biggest impact on this was to the schools. And uh, she was also a member of the planning commission uh, from the school board, so she'd be involved in that. And she really saw how the sausage was made up close during that period. And she had to go out and raise a bond to start investing in schools. So the first thing they did in 49 is they built a new McKinley School. The old McKinley School was where Whole Foods is today on East Washington Street in Vallejo. And it had been there since 1912. It was built by, um, designed by Brenner Jones, uh, but it was totally outdated and too small. So they built the new McKinley School um, that's on Ellis Street, right, Tom?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, that was my mm-hmm. first elementary school. You
0: went, to, you went school. to McKinley in kindergarten? I,
2: yeah, kindergarten. You bet.
0: Yeah, I was in there in kindergarten, too. Yeah,
2: I think you we were on uh, different, different tracts.
0: Within one year, things were happening so fast in that neighborhood, they were in double session in McKinley. Yeah. They, they didn't have enough room for in the new school. Wow. And so um, then what she has to deal with, by the early 50s, uh, two developers, John Novak, who's the guy, he's in the Nevada, a big developer. He's the guy my dad worked for for years, doing plumbing on the tracks. And then this other group... Uh, Uh, called the Blackwell Brothers, Jim Blackwell and his brothers. He had like four brothers ever from Santa Rosa. They bought up a lot of the east side of the freeway. Uh, uh, Essentially, uh, Don Novak bought everything north of East Washington where the uh, Edelman Plaza Mall is, where uh, Ross is today at Trader Joe's. And then the Blackwell Brothers bought everything south of East Washington Street where Washington Square is right now. And they both built their own malls and they both built all those houses out. And they were just building hundreds of houses uh, a year. And they were getting all this money from the East Coast, from these uh, backers who were putting the money into this. And they couldn't put the houses up fast enough, essentially. And this is even before the freeway arrived at 56. They're just speculating. The freeway's going to come. It's going to even get more crazy here. So uh, Helen, by 55, by 54, she has to go out and get, try to get convince people to uh, vote for a bond. So she can build schools, and she gets the money, she succeeds, she builds Kenilworth, she expands McKinley School, she, on the west side, because there's a development going on on the west side of La Cresta, and around Hillcrest Hospital, out on I Street, Cherry Valley, where Tom later uh, lived with his family, all that's being developed by these guys at the same time. Um, she rebuilds the high school, Petalma High School, she expands uh, Valley Vista, because that's too small. She expands, the near school. I mean, she just can't. And a lot of these schools are in double session. She can't keep up with the growth, and that goes on throughout the entire fifties. It's it's really crazy here during that time.
2: Yeah, and it seemed like a small town, <laughs> but uh, if you're a little kid uh, looking at these towns, it, it still felt like uh, it, it felt like a small town to me growing up in it. But it was it was starting to burst at the seams at that point.
0: Yeah, and it was sucking. Those malls on the east side really pulled the business from the downtown. You know, the merchants, Fred Matei, who was the mayor in the early 60s here, Fred Matei Brothers and stuff, they were trying to find ways to keep people coming downtown, essentially. And a lot of the buildings downtown, the landlords, once their tenants moved out, uh, would just board them up or just wouldn't fill them. They wouldn't keep them up at all. There was no need to do that. So. There was a lot of fear that we'd become one of those towns you see, you know, in the Midwest, you drive around, you see a suburb, and then you see the old downtowns all boarded up. And there were real fears around town that that happened.
1: And that's what I say when I ask about the 400 Club, because I would imagine those are the people that had those fears as this went on.
2: Well, those guys were were a lot of blue collar people. So they were uh, they weren't necessarily the business people downtown as much as they were the ones building the houses quite. A,
1: well, but quite they, a lot of them were living in the west side. Oh, yeah. And they would if their yeah. if their downtown area became a ghost town and it was yeah. boarded up that I mean, that's essentially something that they hold very dear. They've lived yeah. their whole lives here. Yeah. Their, their parents came. A lot of them. Parents immigrated here. I would imagine that would be a psychic shock. So, well, yeah, it, it um, was.
2: You know, c- culturally, uh, and, and culturally, here's yeah. personally on a personal story for me, um, I, m- my clothes were bought for me. I grew up on, on Mate's. All of my clothing came from Mate's as a kid. And when they finally closed up, I was a young adult, and I had no idea how to buy clothes because I would walk uh-huh. in— I'd walk into Mate's, Bob or any any of them, Jim or whoever was working it. Andy, uh, they would they knew me, they knew what I wore. Uh, they'd go to the shelves, they'd pick it out, they'd hand it to me. We'd we'd put it on the tab and out I'd go. And son of a gun, when they closed, I had no idea how to buy clothes.
1: Well, and also that was where Copperfields is. It is for it people who don't, don't know.
2: Yeah. Second, yeah, that was their second location.
1: This is an old story. You told it on the old one, but I love it so oh. much. You were walking downtown, and you were uh, yes. you were dressed in a way that Fred Matey did not find to be acceptable. <laughs> Bob Matey. It was Bob, Bob Matei.
2: It was uh, you know what? It, it might have been me and Freddie Gears. It, we, it was junior high or so, and I was look. I just I I can really affect the slob look quite easily, and the son of a gun, I had it. And I'm walking by Mate's and Bob rushes out and grabs me by the collar, drags me into Mate's, lifts my arm up, shows everybody my shirt, and he says, see this? Threadbare. We will not have any of our customers looking like this. And that was it. They set me up with clothes, made me change my (laughs) shirt, put it on the tab, and out, out I went. And then sent the
1: bill to your parents, right? Well, yeah, but thank God. Yeah.
2: And that's the problem. I had no idea how to buy clothes when we finally lost Matez, and uh, culturally, is such a loss for me on a personal level. When we lost our downtown, like it when it when it started shifting, uh, with no more Woolworths, uh, no more Coast to Coast, Uncle Ed's toy store. Oh my God, I didn't know how to shop in a mall when the malls came out. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. It was tough. Remember, you know, and I remember growing up here. We never went outside of Petaluma to buy anything. No, we never went to Santa Rosa or anything. No. You got everything you needed right downtown. Yeah, right downtown. Know? Absolutely. It was very self sufficient, and then that with the malls and the chains coming in, that started shifting. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, did- it's real. And then the other thing that shifted was East Washington Street. So, uh, developers started buying in all these um, chain restaurants. Taco Bell. Yeah. Tom and I spent almost every day there at Taco <laughs> Bell during high school. <laughs> high school. Uh, it said. was like the first fast food, I think, that yeah. and Wendy's. Um, yeah, in and uh, K- And KFC also. Yeah. Um, but those were all new things for us. We didn't have chains mm-hmm. here before. Um, mm-hmm. And it sucked a lot of traffic down to the east side. And it was interesting because there was the first development on Payran, the, the city, mm-hmm. and most of those houses... Uh, were given preference to veterans. They got veterans loans, and they were yeah. given first shot at buying any houses along rent. But there was, a, there was also a rule because the Federal Housing Agency, because of the VA, uh, banned any commercial development around those houses, so it was all residential. And these, these chain gas stations and, and uh, fast food things started kind of sneaking around that. And Helen Putnam fought them because she didn't want any businesses around the schools, either McKinley or Kennelworth, because there was a safety issue. She didn't want the traffic from them on the corners and stuff. And she went to bat trying to ban like gas stations at Payran in Washington and other merchants. Anything south of where Whole Foods is, or east of Whole Foods, that was sort of the dividing line.
2: Yeah, you know. And she
0: yeah. lost that battle. There was just too yeah. money, much money coming into the area, and they were pretty much. The city council was kind of rolling over. I would say, Tom, would you?
2: Well, yeah. In fact, it's you know, and that's where I think we bring in. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I I keep looking back at, and I think, yeah, I think my dad was part of that uh, first uh, Shell gas station there on that corner. He had, he, he wanted yeah. to he wanted to put his real estate.
0: No, he tried to buy the one uh, on the west northwest side that doesn't have a gas station.
2: Right. Uh, he, um, yeah, he he wanted to move his real estate office to that location, right. I think, yeah. I recall now. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? In those days, there were two places business were being done, uh, or it was being decided what would happen in Petaluma, and one was in the city council chambers, and the other one was at uh, the U.S. Bakery on Petaluma Boulevard. Every morning, uh, the builders... And the agents and the city council members and everybody would meet there in the morning for coffee. Which, which
0: is now where Della Fatoria is. <laughs> it's
2: where Delafatoria is. And and so much of Petaluma's business was done in that in that little uh, uh bakery and oh god, they had the best maple bars in the world. Oh what a place I <laughs> was. I was addicted. <laughs>
1: And so Helen Putnam, a lot of people who live here now know her because of the plaza where the Starbucks is downtown and the fountain, and then also the park, which is a glorious park. She is uh, probably in the history books most known for that Supreme Court situation in terms of the population, uh, or rather the growth development uh, limit that she tried to put. Was she influenced by her, uh, her time in education? Is that why this was such a pressing issue for her? Why she attached so much of her effort to pushing this through?
0: No, she was kind of backed into that. She um, she's been a very a very talented woman. Um, gone, she got a, her teaching degree from Berkeley when she came before she came up here. But um, um, what happened with the growth limits? Um, essentially, in the '60s, but she was elected mayor in '65. She was um, one of the first
2: female mayors, women mayors in, first in the United States. female mayor in the United uh, States. I think
0: she might have been the first female. President of the Board of Education, which she said she held that for 12 years, too. I'm checking into that. Um, But she went back, after she got off the Board of Education in 1960, she went back to to teaching and being principal of Two Rock uh, Elementary School. And a lot of people know her from that. She ran for the, uh, and she was a, Bill Sobranos was a huge supporter of Helen Putnam. I think he's the one who started a Whisper campaign to get her to run for mayor, and she finally did in 65. She won as Tom said, the downtown was starting to disappear. And so what she was part of a city council that came up with a plan of urban renewal. They were gonna tear down large parts of the downtown. They were gonna make Kentucky Street between Washington and Western into a closed mall. Which, which I, I think, think
2: I wish they had. I, I think should
0: happen today, yes, frankly. I especially do during the pandemic.
2: But uh, I still think so. gonna
0: And they were gonna
3: cover it with corrugated plastic.
0: Right, corrugated plastic. Oh, they were okay. going to tear down everything along Keller Street, Jim, opposite your grocery store and opposite the Phoenix. Tear down that whole block yes, on, the, on, the, on that wet east side of Keller Street between Western and uh, Washington Street and yes. make it into a big parking lot. Yes, they were true. going to then tear down all the buildings from B Street out to Oak Street um, along the boulevard. On the east side, so everything along the river. They're going to leave uh, all the buildings on the boulevard that were on the west side, but everything was going to be torn down. Can you imagine? I mean, all of Main uh, Street uh, essentially, all the way to Oak Street, okay. torn down, and they were going to they were going to put in a four lane um, road through town essentially, and they were going to retain part of Pember Boulevard as another parking lot. So they were going to the throw the
2: baby out on with on the, the bathwater. Yeah, it's a uh, I you know I had no idea about that the the idea of turning uh, Kentucky Street into a a mall closing it off to make it a, a pedestrian mall was a great idea their vision mm-hmm. for it but their vision for it absolutely sucked
1: what were they going to yeah. do like try to do eminent domain or just to place offers to yeah, everybody they would do
0: eminent domain they would everything would be uh, essentially. Um, seized along that side of the river and torn down because they were all old buildings, as Tom says, you know, and a lot of them were pretty decrepit, and, and people weren't willing to invest, and and that was their idea. They were going to create their own mall downtown yeah. to compete with the malls on the east side, and yeah. Helen spearheaded that, and it went to a vote, and it lost by, in 69, it lost by a very narrow vote Ooh, of happening. Thank God. Um, and then after that in the early seventies, essentially the growth really like between 70 and 73. I mean, it just took off uh, exponentially and there, there were a lot of infrastructure issues and services that weren't being provided to the East side because the city didn't have the money. They couldn't afford it. They couldn't maintain the growth. So out of desperation, they tried to impose a building limit of 500 new houses a year. And the, 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 essentially the developers took them to court and fought them all the way to the Supreme Court, and then they ended up losing. Uh, and they lost. That, that That was decided. The Supreme Court essentially would not hear the argument of the developers after the lower courts approved the 500 housing limit, and that was in 1976. So she kind of, once she got into that, she really got into it, but it wasn't something she wanted to do. I mean, she she was a pragmatist, and I think she tried to manage... She'd come up through the building through the 50s. She knew all the ins and outs. She was trying to have a manageable growth situation, and it was out of desperation that she went that route, essentially.
1: Yeah, I, I that's really interesting. I thought that maybe because of the uh, being on the front lines of education, she saw just how much unfettered growth can affect you know community in un, unexpected yep. ways. Um, but it looks like she came upon it another way. Well, no,
0: that well, was partly I think there, correct. There's, some, there's something said for that. She was replaced yeah. as president of the school board. Was she was replaced by Bill Cordham, who is a, a veterinarian from uh, Gatadi, lived uh, on Eli Road, and probably the leading. Um, environmentalist in the 60s and 70s here and um, she he ran for supervisor in 74 and won and um, at the same time that Helen was involved in um, this Supreme Court battle and whatnot over the flow growth and they were close friends even though she doesn't indicate that she was an environmentalist prior to that but I think it was that educational part that really tied them together and so I, I think you're I think you're exactly right Jim I think she wanted to make sure that there was manageable growth, that they could provide education. I mean, they still had double sessions going everywhere around. as this growth was, They couldn't build the schools fast enough,
1: essentially. And Don Bennett uh, wrote an article in the Argus, looks like, in 2008, where he talked about all this. And he said, uh, as of the, the writing of the article, three decades later, Petaluma is still a magic word whenever statewide planners gather. This city made a big difference in the way communities are planned, and it was the first in the nation to do that.
2: Yeah, it was. A, it was yeah, an accident. she's a hero
0: for that. I mean, yeah. there is an award. The California Cities Association has an annual Helen Putnam Award yeah. for cities who uh, who manage their growth and and their infrastructure and, and do good work, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so she's still uh, renowned for that. The other thing that was interesting about Philip, about uh, Helen is that after she lost that vote to tear down the downtown. um... The Healy Mansion, which was the old Swanson Funeral Home yes. at Keokuk in Washington. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah, that was t- a beautiful home. It, oh. it, very similar to the stack house that's out on yes, Pelham Boulevard absolutely. north as you head toward Denman Flats. Uh, beautiful queen Anne. It was torn down, essentially. Oh. And that spawned a lot of people. spawned oh. the creation of the Heritage Homes Association in Petaluma. They tore and it down Ellen, to put
2: in a gas station. Who, What's that? They tore it down to put in a gas station, as I recall.
0: Yeah, they did. And now even that gas station didn't survive. Mm -hmm. Um, But Helen got religion. And after that, she'd always been interested in the history of Petaluma. When she was on the school board, she'd go around to PTA meetings, and she'd give a, a, a short history lesson about early Petaluma. And she spearheaded historical preservation of the downtown. And we have to thank her for that yeah. because she saved, as Tom was saying, they were tearing down buildings left and right, oh, yeah. and she put us up to that largely. And she she created the whole, uh, she saved the mill, she created the Turing base, and she brought Skip Summer in to bring the old Farrell Burns house over there and uh, the Pometa house, which is the one C Street there. She did a lot to bring life back to the downtown, because once the Petaluma mill was turned into a boutique shop by Skip Summer in the mid-70s, yeah. traffic, foot traffic started coming back to Petaluma, away from the chain stores, essentially.
1: Was, so, she, was she vilified for any of this work? Like, did the developers do uh, smear campaigns against uh, her, um, or was it just a different time back then?
2: It was a different no, time. No,
0: I think they did.
2: <laughs> well, they could try, <laughs> I, I they but it'd right. it would be tough. It would have know? been tough. Uh, pedal, uh, uh, Mayor Putnam was was so widely loved by old schoolers. Uh, it absolutely you couldn't say a a bad word about her in my house. And my dad was a developer. Uh, gosh, what a gracious woman she was. I think. Uh,
0: yeah, and she was sharp. You know, she had, yeah. as I say, for a woman at that time. I think that time on the school board and being on the planning commission. She learned the ropes, and she also cultivated a a, a broad uh, support base from the women in town she yeah. She was a fashionista she had a radio yes. show that she broadcast fashion tips twice a week as long as as well as home tips for women um uh, she she was a moderator of fashion shows for young women which were very popular in the 50s here and through that and through the PTA and whatnot she really built this base of women supporters in town and she could do no wrong and and i I think that was very important and then she just knew how to play she knew how to play the skip summers and the bill sobranises and all these old guys (laughs) really well they respected her
1: well, and you know, it's a great thing now. Looking at that that whole battle for development, and and really everything we've talked about today, just how uh, easily it could have gone the other way. You, you say yep. that the the vote to change yeah. downtown was a very narrow a narrow victory. Yeah. Just that's because of that. The, it looks the way that it does. A few people had voted another way. The downtown would look completely different. No, you oh, know. it
0: would be like Santa Rosa, where they put the mall in the middle of the downtown, and they they, they, they tore down this courthouse and put a thoroughfare through it for a yeah. long time, you know? Yeah. But It you took know. them a long time to figure out, hey, we need that courthouse back. We don't have a heart in this downtown, no, we don't. you know?
2: We don't, and that's a shame. But there's one thing, that, Katie, did you say they were going to put up a corrugated plastic?
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. I
3: remember reading that in the Argus newsroom and just shouting out loud, Oh my god. Because I was so astonished yep. and revolted. <laughs> revolted. But that's what the vision was in
2: those days.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh my god. And then Katie, you would end up uh coming to town. You said 1981?
3: I came on my birthday, 1981. Um we were leaving San Francisco and coming north and this was the what we we figured that someday we could afford so we rented a little two-bedroom cottage at 10th and f street and um i didn't I, i knew i was home but i didn't really become home and come home and realize it until I joined the staff of the Argus Courier in 1994 thanks to Ricky Watts who was a paper boy in those days for the Argus and he would read one copy of the paper while he rolled the rest and he came in one day and I was in the kitchen and he said you've been looking for a job and they need an editorial assistant you'd be really good at it. Oh, so I sent in a funny resume, which nobody ever does, and I got a call back, and the rest, as they say, is history. Cool. Because they weren't quite sure what to do with me at first. They put me in charge of doing the yesteryear's column. Oh. And I'd, I'd, always lo- I'd always loved history, and mm-hmm. what I liked was ferreting out the amusing, intriguing, funny bits that <laughs> you could find if you just looked hard enough. And so, I
0: So, Katie, say a few things about what the yesteryear column was, because people oh, may not know.
3: Okay, so for yesteryears, I scrolled back, because the Argus is, I think, the ninth oldest newspaper in California, so it dates, yeah. it's, it dates to 1855. It's yes. three years older than the city itself. Yeah which was um, incorporated in, 19, in 1858. And almost all the copies are available on microfilm. Yes. So I would just go to the library every couple of weeks, and I would read back issues, and I would transcribe witty bits or clever bits or funny bits or things that approved that... And no, Nothing really changes because we're having pothole problems, yes. and at the same time that we are currently, we're having pothole problems back in 1870.
1: Well, there are many, many, many Katie Watts articles online, and if you search yeah. her name and Argus Courier or Petaluma, they will come up on Google. And um, Some will.
0: Some will. <laughs> Yeah. Um and I but, just wanna put a you know, an alert out of here that I underst- I hear from the grapevine that Katie's working on a novel or a book, a memoir. Oh god, John, are you gonna do that to me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we're gonna yeah, have, we're gonna give did. John's book another hype in a minute, so why don't you well, tell yeah. us about that? Yeah.
3: John has been pushing me to put together all the memoir pieces that I have been writing for the past decade and a half and creating a book out of it.
0: Great so, and they're wonderful stories. Yeah, they really absolutely. are. Thank you.
3: Thank you. So oh uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, um, oh. I'm being encouraged by more than John, and I just might finally sit down and do it.
1: And, uh, John, of course, you released uh, On a River Winding Home, Stories and Visions of the Petaluma River Watershed. And, I mean, b- both of you guys are a reason that people will be able to look back on the history we've discussed and also today's history and uh, be able to talk about it 100 years from now. I oh, mean, yes. the- I These are shown. going to be the sources that are available to future historians that want to do oh, what we're doing tonight.
2: No, the stories, you know, that I used to read uh, and, and hear, About Petaluma in the 1850s and 1860s and the 1800s were so outrageous Uh, but I think as you look back on the history of Petaluma that that, uh, John and I have lived through and what came the 20 and 30 and 40 years before us still outrageous this town has the ability to be outrageous and it's always a good read
1: so (laughs) you know we got to look at a little bit of that outrageousness tonight and um, I'm so thankful for the two of you joining us on the phone thank you so much
3: Uh, thank you for having us this has
1: been a joy thanks a lot and if the people listening to this liked what they heard check out our three other Petaluma History episodes as well as the Calistoga one we did a couple weeks ago you know we love doing these and hope to do a few more of them before uh, the end of summer so John and Katie once again John and Katie thank thank you you so so much much for joining us thank you so much thank you
3: thanks